Yeah, so 10 years ago, eh? 2006. It feels like yesterday, and yet well, it's a decade ago. <laughs> well, a lot has changed for you. I mean, yeah. Last time, right? So 10 years at PlayStation, and now here you are on your own again. Well, you've got us now, which I think is probably a, the best thing that could have happened. I mean, it's better than PlayStation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and now he can never go back. You know what's really funny is I'm usually never at a loss for words. How do I come back to that? Well, it's good to have a new family. Lovely to be with you guys. You know, I'm an utter lunatic raving fan of oh, just about need? everything you do. Come on. You're making us blush already. I want to actually <laughs> use that. That 10 years comment is a, is a, a good kind of sum up for what I want to talk about today, uh, which is a little bit about the difference because... I mean, the what? When was the last time that you actually made and released a game? Like, when? When actually was that? Well, if you're talking about properly on my own, it was probably the late '80s. I mean, I've done I've done a few tiny toy throwaway things since mm-hmm. then, but nothing serious and nothing full time. So, I guess in collaboration with other people, it would have been the '90s. But actually, on my own for the most part, would have been the late 80s, I think. So it's longer than 10 years. You know? Yeah, yeah. In terms of doing stuff for myself and developing video games. I mean, it's a lifetime ago. You know, mm-hmm. Most of the developers that I work with, this is a crazy thing, okay? I mean, I love everything that they do, but one of the things that makes me sick is that... Um, <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I despise about them <laughs> is that <laughs> these people were born after I finished making games. It's literally a lifetime ago. Mike and I were born in the late 80s. Yeah, I think... <laughs> when, did, when did Chimera come out? Was it 89? 86, dude. Actually, oh, first... man, I was born in 88. <laughs> 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 no, the first one came out in 85. Oh. Um, and then all of the follow-ons, you know, the, the ports and so on, came out in 86. And people are still talking about it today. You know, what's really funny about that, I think this is, this is really funny, okay, because at the time, I mean, give it about a month after you finished a project, most people, most creative people, and I would imagine that you fall into this category as well, people who create creative output, whatever form it is, a few days after it's done, you never want to see the back of it. A month after, it's like you look at it and you think, okay, you know what, it's all right, but it's broken here, it's broken there, all you see are the faults. And you think about how to improve those. And that's part of the creative process. And of course, I look back and I think, oh, yeah, this is just um, this is just a rip off of the stuff Ultimate were trying to do. It was really badly done. There was no gameplay, blah, 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 blah. But then you bump into people, right? And they say, oh, my God, I remember Chimera. It was amazing. Oh, me and my brother were up all night playing that. We spent our pocket money on I'm already getting, you know, putting my money, getting my money out of my wallet and trying to hand it back to them because i'm, I'm so sorry <laughs> the inevitable <laughs> refund request 30 years on you know inflation adjusted but no they love it and, and i and you know what at first i was embarrassed and i thought you you guys are a bit bit messed up I, I need to leave this conversation but then what happened was i realized that these people were genuine they actually meant it i had a senior director at playstation recently stopped me in the cafeteria we have, a, we have. See, look, I haven't slipped out of that mindset yet. We yeah. had, or I had when I was there, a really nice cafeteria. But more about that another time. This guy comes up to me, senior director. And we've been working together, you know, nine, ten years at PlayStation. And he goes, because he must have seen one of my blogs. I didn't know you were the one who did Chimera. And suddenly, 
this senior director who carries himself with authority and so on has turned into this, I don't know, seven-year-old kid. He's saying, I used to love that game. And I'm looking at him thinking, are you taking the mick? And he's not. So, I, so what I started to do lately is ask people what it was about that game that they liked. And I think they liked being terrified by the scream. They liked the feeling of tension. I mean, it was essentially, you make one mistake, that's it, all your progress is gone. No save points, you know, no, no game saving. The roguelike before there were roguelikes. Yeah, basically. <laughs> well, a, a roguelike by default, because I didn't know how to do checkpoints at that point. <laughs> <laughs> it was just as how it was, man. What are you going to do? Yeah. Is this reaction from people part of why you like want to get back into it again? Do you want to have this kind of interaction with people? Like this excitement? No, not really. Um, see, the thing about that, I reckon, is that everybody has some kind of memory of things that they really enjoyed when they were younger any kind of artistic endeavor whether it's a film or a book or increasingly nowadays video games and if you're creating video games you have to understand that that's the perfectly natural reaction it might not necessarily have anything to do with you and so if i were to have that feeling that hey if it made ga- if, if these games that i made back then made people feel this way i could still do that now no that's not true there'll be a new generation there'll be different things and you never quite know what it is about what you're creating that's going to generate that kind of impact on people i think otherwise there'd be a lot of millionaires out there who've cracked the formula of creative success any hollywood studio has the same problem any um, music publisher or, or record company has exactly the same problem how do you reliably create stuff that that makes people um moved i guess you know stuff that moves people art if you want to uh call it that nobody has a formula to create that so so no it's not about that so much as i worked with a lot of developers who were all who what happened was their enthusiasm began to really infect me i never lost the urge you know mm-hmm. i never lost the urge i always wanted once you start to create stuff to stop it it's like killing a part of your soul yeah. And so I've been walking around for about 15, 20 years, soul dead, basically. And it was only in the last few years that I started to wake up to, you know what? This creative spark, especially with independent developers, still out there. It's not just a corporate machine. It's not just, I don't know, the Stock Aitken and Waterman syndrome of video games. There's this other cool stuff happening, and it's really exciting. And there is a scene. And before long, I found myself at the very center of it. Yeah. No one was more surprised than me. And the more I found that, the more developers I met, um, the more excited I got by them. So it was th- it was the other developers who excited me so much with what they were doing. And I thought, you know what? I used to be able to do this. The stuff they're talking about is exactly the same sort of stuff I used to talk about and get excited about. Yeah, I mean, I've been in that scenario. Like when I was trying to make this type of thing my life like so many of my friends like federico for example like they were doing what they wanted to do for a living and it's like being around those sort of people in those scenarios is like i want to do what you do it makes it really hard and it's been harder for you like coming from one going into the other but now you've kind of gone back again i don't know i don't know if it was hard you know what was hard it was leaving playstation that was hard because you you build yourself this this area this niche this position and and to chuck that all in because it's not like I was unhappy with my job you know it'd be another thing five years or so ago I was thinking I hate it here I've got to go I've got to make games and I'm so glad that I didn't do it at that point because I never really would have fulfilled my potential at PlayStation wouldn't have helped to change PlayStation 
Um, and I wouldn't have got to work with so many amazing people inside PlayStation as well as outside. So for me, the biggest wrench was, well, you know what? I finally got to a really good position here. I've got um, the remit to do some amazing things. You know, a week before I left, I was visiting Hello Games. Oh, we're going to talk about them. At some point. <laughs> You're not getting away about that story. <laughs> so that, that was tough. Leaving PlayStation was tough. But going back to doing this again, oh, man, I wanted nothing more. If it wasn't for going back to this, I don't think I would ever have left PlayStation. So when you were helping other developers uh, sort of uh, fulfill their dreams and making games, did it ever occur to you that you wanted to be part of another project, not necessarily one of your own? Like, Did, did it ever happen to you that you were looking at a, an upcoming game and you were like, oh man, I really want to be part of this project? I kind of felt like I already was because hmm. by helping making those games happen and understanding what those developers were about what they wanted where they wanted to go how much input they wanted from a partner having understood that you know because having done development and publishing and a startup I kind of got the view on both sides and so I always felt like I was part of um, their broader team if not their internal team and I always got to see stuff extremely early and we didn't necessarily influence stuff because it wasn't our philosophy to really shape the game in any mm -hmm. way. But if we saw something exciting, we'd certainly give feedback. Yeah. But for, for us, it was a really, really important principle that we don't interfere with the creative vision. Now, how many creators are there out there? You can imagine this, right? Um, the majority, for sure, who would love to get some funding but don't want their creative vision to be destroyed. So many endeavours get diluted i guess um adulterated is possibly even a better word to describe that scenario where you, this, the purity of the vision gets trashed and you still have big time directors right in movies and so on saying uh, it wasn't quite how i wanted to make it well we wanted to work with developers and make sure that they never said that so yeah i always felt part of their team mm. i didn't want to be any more part of the team mm -hmm. than, than i was so really what you wanted to do was to go out on your own and be an indie developer that that that's the core you wanted to go back to what you used to do and kind of see what would happen that's a pretty good summary I, I, you know i i try to style it up a bit but i can't what it boils down to is i love coding i love designing i love video games i love the whole culture i love the environment i love the business i love the people what's not to love i mean the thing i love about video games okay it brings joy to people's lives Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people um, who aren't educated about video games think it's a frivolous thing. How can something that in a world that has so much that's wrong with it, that brings joy to people's lives, be frivolous? Isn't it essential? Isn't it like other art in that is totally essential? I mean, I can, I don't, I'm sure you guys are going to be much better at this than I am, but I can measure um, and remember moments of my life from when I was very young, not very young, oh my God, I'm ancient, but when I was younger <laughs> to, to much more recently by the video games I was playing at the time. Yeah. You must have some good examples of that, right? Uh, I always go back to Pokemon. I, and I feel like just, I would never stop talking about Pokemon. Like I just remember so many parts of my youth 
tied to that game and like the whole world around it. I mean, I still play them. I still look forward to every single one of them. But like, I remember the first one. I remember the the Christmas where I got a new Game Boy, and it was probably a Game Boy Color maybe. And oh, oh, actually, no, I don't think it was the color. They they had like red ones and blue ones that came out for red and blue Pokemon Red and Blue. They weren't like branded with Pokemon, but they just were the same colors, right? And I remember, I think I got a a red Game Boy with game with Pokemon Red. I was getting it for Christmas. I knew it was coming. And that Christmas, I didn't sleep the night before. Like I couldn't sleep. I've never been so excited in my life for a video game as the original Pokemon. And it was the same with the TV series. Like the night before the TV st- series started airing in the UK, <laughs> I remember this story. <laughs> Man, I couldn't sleep a wink the night before. Like, I, I, there were so many strange things about Pokemon, like in the way that I got into it, where it was like, oh, I bought the magazine. Like, you the bought game the guide. guide. Yeah, I bought the game guide and read the entire thing before the game came out. And like, and I would sit and draw. Like, I would just have the the chart of the one hundred and fifty, and I would just sit and draw them. All. Oh, I just loved that series so much, and I know that like Federico's all about final fantasy yeah for me any, any final fantasy really especially i would i would say tactics and you know final fantasy 7 and 9 which is coming out again as a remake by the way so i'm <laughs> gonna buy that <laughs> see you later buddy <laughs> yeah i know i know <laughs> you see federico for a month that's where he is <laughs> basically our first episode of Remaster is brought to you by Squarespace. You can start building your own website today at squarespace.com. Use the offer code insertcoin at checkout to get yourself 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. With Squarespace, you'll be able to put a website on the internet that looks professionally designed, regardless of your skill level, no matter how much coding experience you may or may not have. They have intuitive and easy-to-use tools that make it a breeze to make your website look and feel exactly how you want. They have stunning templates that can be adapted and changed to suit your mood, to suit your style. And they also have templates that fit great for musicians and businesses and restaurants and artists and bloggers. It doesn't matter what it is you want to do, Squarespace can help you do it. And all of their sites feature responsive design to make your website look great on all devices. Squarespace use state-of-the-art technology to power your site. They ensure security and stability, and this is why they're trusted by millions of people around the world. Squarespace have 24-7 support with live chat and email, so they're there if you have any comments or questions. They have their commerce platform, which allows you to sell physical and digital goods. They have rock-solid fast hosting, their cover page functionality to build great-looking single-page websites, and so much more. If you sign up for a year, you'll get yourself a free domain name, allowing you to choose exactly what you want your site to be called, and their plans start at just $8 a month. You can sign up for a free trial today with no credit card required and start booting your own website straight away by going to squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up, make sure that you use the offer code insertcoin at checkout. Not only will this get you 10% off your first purchase, you'll also be showing your support for Remaster. Thank you so much to Squarespace for helping us out today and supporting Relay FM. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Shade, I wanted to ask you, was there a specific moment when you realized this is a change that I got to make in my life? Or was it more a, a series of m- moments that you realized that? Can you, can you pinpoint like a specific day or week when you were like, yeah, this is it. I, I got to make this change. I think if I'm really honest with myself, which is very, very hard to do, I think I realized in 1992 that by not continuing to develop video games on my own and by going into a larger team, I was making a mistake. I just didn't have the perspective to realize that there were alternatives or there were other ways of doing it. But I don't regret it. 
I don't regret all of the other stuff I learned because I wouldn't have ended up where I was without any of that stuff. But I would say, I think first, there, there, there was a meeting I had with a developer called Honey Slug, the guys who made Hohokam and who my team worked with on Super Exploding Zoo. I met them in March 2009. And up until that point, I'd been really very jaded, you know, really disappointed with video games and I was just doing a job basically mm. and looking for any excuse to get out and I remember going to their offices because PlayStation was beginning the the minis program I don't know if you remember that for um for the yeah. PSP yeah yeah so we were starting that program and I was responsible for bringing in games for minis because it was an experiment in in digital creativity and getting more independent developers involved and I went to see Honey Slug and I thought, you know what, let's let's do this meeting at about, I don't know, three o'clock. Maybe I can get out four thirty and, and go home early, you know? Yeah. So much. But like meeting at two ends at three, it'll take me an hour to go back to the office. I'll go home. <laughs> and that that is the um the siren song of just about everyone who's annoyed with their job and has the ability to go to an external meeting, right? <laughs> Oh, my God. How many of those did I have? So this is another one of those. There's got to be a name for those meetings, right, Mike? Yeah, we'll come up with that. Yeah. So this is one of those meetings. And I thought, these guys do flash games. They're going to be rubbish. That means I get to go home even earlier because I get to be dismissive and snobby and PlayStation-y. You know? It's like, ugh. ugh exactly. Flash games? We won't touch your flash games. They're <laughs> appalling. You can't bring your drivel onto our devices. There's none of that. Um I was absolutely blown away. Ricky was just so inspirational. From the moment I stepped in to the two and a half hours the meeting took instead of the scheduled half hour. I didn't leave till half six, by the way. They just showed me a lot longer than two and a half hours, actually. Uh, The meeting went on two and a half hours longer than I'd hoped it would. Um, And at the end, I was buzzing because he just showed me game after game after game. And yeah, they were in flash, you know. You know what was cool about them was that it wasn't that they were just good ideas because they were good ideas. It was the excitement they had. They weren't just some crappy little flash house doing little flash demos to sell somebody's brand. They were expressing their their craft and they and flash just happened to be the tool that they were using. And I thought, I want to bottle this. I want to capture it. These guys are going to come to minis. I'm going to bung them some money. Let's make it happen. And on the way home, I thought, i got to do this again. And maybe I can. And I think that's when it started to change. And every day since then, more or less, I've been thinking, there's going to be a time when I can get back into making games again. And that moment can't come soon enough. Up until that point, I didn't think it was possible for me any anymore because, right. let's face it, the teams are just getting bigger and bigger. Budgets were spiralling out of control. The games are getting more and more boring. There's very little innovation and so on. Basically, I was jaded. I'm trying to bl- blame games and the environment and so on. But I think I got really jaded. And I think that, for me, was the first sparking of seeing independent developers and, and what that scene actually meant and what it meant to make games again. They just basically woke me up again that's just wonderful so there's like a bunch of things that uh, that we want to try and use your experience to help answer because i've enjoyed video games my whole life but it's only really in the last couple of years that i've paid any attention to the video game industry right like as a thing mm-hmm. um and so there's been a bunch of things that i've missed as to how they've happened 
one of them is like, why have the teams gotten so large? And then also in the last couple of years, why are they getting small again? Right? Because it's like video game teams were small. Like when you made Camera, it was like you. And then they got huge, right? So you got like 300 people working on Grand Theft Auto. And that seemed like it was the only way that you could do this stuff. But now you've got teams of two again because of like, I don't know, is it the app store or like digital distribution or whatever? Like I've created these small teams. Like why has that occurred? And then kind of what's changed to bring these small teams back again? Yeah, those are really good questions. I think what happened was hardware got, it's evolution, okay? Uh, and it's cycles. So hardware started to improve. Mm-hmm. But one of the, I think one of the biggest drivers apart from hardware improving, was Nintendo getting into the market with the NES. And what that, what that did was it moved video games away from niche. I mean, Atari had done it before, right? So with the VCS. But I think Nintendo really made it huge, especially in American homes, to a scale that Atari never achieved. And because the hardware was beginning to advance, and because um, there was more of a mass market approach, you know, you plug in a cartridge and you play... Two things happened. First of all, the demand for quality went up because it became a a proper consumer product and not just a niche hobby. And then given the mass market scale, you had to be really careful about risk because let's face it, if you've printed, um, if you've manufactured a whole bunch of cartridges, you're going to have to sell them because otherwise that's just dead stock. That's just dead inventory. Or bury them in a landfill in Mexico. Or bury them in a landfill. And of course, they found those recently, didn't <laughs> yeah, they? Yeah, they did. <laughs> did you watch that Netflix thing? I haven't seen it. We just, I just love the story. Yeah, it's a great story. It's not such a great documentary. Okay, good to know. I, I kind of fell asleep. I <laughs> wish I'd been in that landfill myself, but I digress. <laughs> I, I think the drive towards high quality and the, the drive towards it being a much more consumer and accepted activity. It's funny, isn't it? Because we talk about mainstreaming video games now, but they were actually mainstream in the 80s when uh, Atari was around and um, and more so Nintendo. When I got my Nintendo, everybody that I knew had one. Yeah. Like, it wasn't like it was just me. I mean, and I think maybe it seems like that, that there were lots of people that had them but it was seemed more of like a like a I don't know like a simple activity because I you know I did notice that when like Call of Duty and stuff came out video gaming wasn't a nerdy thing anymore like with the with multiplayer stuff like just everybody plays games again maybe it changed like in the middle you know in between like the NES and now video gaming kind of went became a bit more niche again I don't know but it feels like there was definitely a change for me at least in the last few years to see that again yeah I th- I think there has been um I mean, you're right to talk about digital distribution being one of the biggest changes. That's really, um, uh, I would say, the biggest driver towards broadening the the type of entertainment that's available. And I'm not just talking about video games here. Digital distribution has affected everything, as you know, books and music and and film as well, as well as creating new forms. You know, you, you wouldn't have had Twitch without digital distribution as a backbone uh, then it becomes real-time digital distribution it becomes a different model altogether and i think we're still getting to grips with some of this stuff and it's it's still early days app store obviously changed a lot of things i mean um but i think it was the the low barriers to entry and the coolness of the product that was really more important because there were other digital stores i mean you know steam came around a while ago even the playstation store was around quite a while ago so the means to be able to 
get content from a digital storefront wasn't necessarily the only reason why team sizes became smaller because you know there were still curators at the front so for example if you look at the early days of um, XBLA they heavily curated their store which is why you had very few uh, indie games but they were smashes because they were really excellent at curating the storefront you'd have specific slots in which they'd come out you know you'd get an agreement with Microsoft and and you'd get some of the best independent games made. And then suddenly they lost the plot. I don't know what happened. Maybe change your personnel, um, change your thinking. Um, but that kind of set the tone. Steam set the tone. Um, the App Store and all of the iOS ecosystem completely changed. Uh, I, I think what happened there was the developer base got disrupted. I think many people think hmm. it was... It was uh, it was publishers that got disrupted. I don't think it was because the publishers continued to sell on other devices, on the traditional devices. I mean, you know, PlayStation 4 was supposed to be dead in the water, right? It became the most successful console launch in history. It's because gaming is big. But what's happened is that the App Store made it even bigger. So people who weren't gamers before are now gamers. Federico, mm. I mean, you, you've always been a gamer, right? And yeah, I bet you still play games on your iOS devices. Yeah, I do. Uh, in fact, I think I mo- I do more every year of that. I, I, like I find myself playing more and more on my iPhone and iPad, and less and less on on a traditional console. And I and I guess the reason why is it feels like less of a I don't want to say a commitment, but it I feel like it fits more with my lifestyle. It's less of a of a disruptive change. Like I, I don't approach gaming on iOS as Oh yeah, I gotta sit down in front of my TV and I gotta play with a console, or I gotta take this specific accessory or you know this specific portable console with me, and it doesn't do anything that I that I require for entertainment or work on my iPhone and iPad. I gotta just carry around this console f- just for gaming, and maybe that's the reason why that I that I'm playing more and more on iOS, and and I see. You know, the, the best part is seeing everyone basically being a gamer now. And some quote-unquote gamers don't like this, but, uh, you know, everyone with an iPhone, even my mother or, you know, all of my friends are basically gamer, gamers in a way now because they can just download anything from the App Store. And sometimes those are free games, other times those are paid games. And it doesn't matter because the, the, the final product is the same. Everyone is playing video games. And that's great, I think. But there's there's one aspect, Shahid, that I that I don't quite understand, and I I need to ask you because I've always been curious about this. So where were the indie developers during the, I want to say, mass market boom of video games? Let's say between the, the first Nintendo, maybe the Super Nintendo, up until the PlayStation 2. Were there any indie developers in the sense that we intend indie developers now? So like a bunch of people... Uh, like two or two five people making a game, or is the the idea of the indie developer a modern concept from the past? I don't know, six seven years. I think the scene has changed dramatically. I would not say that anybody before the last I don't know six seven years or so would have recognized the term indie hmm. as as a classification. That. It it might have been around, but it, it wasn't a scene. I think what happened was with the advent of Steam games, 
certainly stuff like World of Goo made a, uh, a really big impact. Limbo yeah. made a really big impact. Um, Castle Crashers and the like. I think what happened was that before there were developers, there just weren't as many. And I think three things really massively changed. I mean, you've talked, Mike talked earlier about digital distribution being a huge factor, and it was. Another factor was tools got loads better. So in the old days, if you wanted to make a game, you had to write your own engine. You had to write everything from scratch. And there was very little support from the hardware. The hardware simply wasn't powerful enough. What's happened over the years is the hardware has got more and more powerful. And tools makers have got more and more sophisticated. So now you have the likes of Unity and Unreal. And there are many other engines as well you can choose from. You can go from engines all the way down to middleware. You know, an engine will do much more of the work for you. Middleware will support some of the work that you want to do. And that has massively facilitated uh, games players. But I think the other thing that really made a, a big change and that allowed a scene to flourish is just the sheer multiplicity of devices available. You know, in the old days, if you wanted to game, there were maybe only a small number of choices. But now you can game on your toaster. I mean, is there anything you can't game on now? <laughs> There's pretty much everything out there has got some kind of internet capability and some touchscreen control and so on. iOS definitely had a massive impact. But, you know, I, I did a recent count. I, I, I do this as a, a showpiece in some of my talks to talk about how many internet connected devices that can game I have in my household. And I think a couple of years ago, it was like 35 or something obscene like that. And, and people looked at me like I was crazy, like you capitalist pig. But then I asked them to conduct the same kind of count. And there were very few who, who had families who had fewer than 20. And the reason, obviously, I add more is because I'm in the industry, so I have lots of these devices and so on. But now I think it's, it's far more than that. You know, everyone's got your, your current iPhone. Maybe there's an older iPhone with someone in the family. You've got your set-top box. Maybe you've got an Apple TV. Maybe you've got a couple of Apple TVs, and now the, guess what? They can game too. So you've got all these devices everywhere in the house. We are completely connected on the internet. You've got digital distribution and... Uh, the tools are so good that I reckon, and I'm putting myself out here, I reckon if I sat down with both of you, the three of us could work on a game and within a week have something out on a store, digitally distributing something or other. I'm not saying it would be great, but the fact is there's less resistance than ever before to a person with an idea reaching the market in video games. I think that applies to pretty much any digital media or traditional media that's transitioned to digital. But I think it's had a particularly profound impact on games because for the majority of the population, games are still a novelty and they become less of a novelty simply because the advent of all of the um, the legs of the, the new, uh, I guess, revolution that, that we're talking about here. Saying about getting a game done in a week, like that's kind of what game jams are all about, right? Like you prove it. Like, you just did one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's getting to the end as quickly as possible. I mean, you guys ship constantly. I mean, how many podcasts are you working on now? <laughs> Who knows, twenty. Man. Mike works on twenty podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> just nuts. And then you have you have multiple gigs. And the thing is, you guys are shipping all the time. And the new world, as you as you know better than I do at the moment. You know, I'm I'm a nothing in comparison is you guys you you guys ship and ship and ship and ship and ship and you don't even bat an eyelid you know it's just done and all of the stuff that it takes to ship yeah of course you need skills for that 
but the real quality i think the real the real difference between people who are achieving success in this new digital connected world and those who aren't is that the ones who are achieving success are shipping constantly and they're learning from it all the time and video games is no different yes yeah, so, so i did a game um in a weekend and i got it out in a weekend and it's the first time i've i've i think i've ever done yeah it's the first time in my life i've ever done that but it's not like i came into it cold you know i can, i can code i did have to familiarize myself with it um but the real trick wasn't in getting a game done the real trick was getting the mindset of by the end of this weekend because this was for the um, Ludum Dare thing, I, I guess you're talking about, right? Yeah. The end, end of that weekend, I wanted to have a game that people could download and play from a commercial store. And I managed to do that. And yeah, it was it was rubbish. It was minimalistic. It was basically the Dark Souls of word games, but pantsier. It's so and... hard, man. <laughs> it's like, brutal, I've played it? I've played that game, and I just can't... There's nothing I can do to get a word, right? Like, I just can't get any words. It's because it's got all the words. The computer knows all the words. <laughs> well, then I can't win. <laughs> so I'm I'm working on it since. But the important thing was get it out, right? Yeah. I get it out, learn, uh, and then do do another release. Do something else, learn, do another release, and then you get to the point where you're someone like Matt Hall, one of my absolute heroes in video games, and the nicest guy you could hope to meet. And of his last seven iOS games, five have been number ones. I mean it's not luck you know he developed his skills over a very very long period of time you know he's extremely experienced and he knows how to hit those buttons now the swine so it it kind of makes game development more similar to blogging or podcasting in the sense that it's a frequent output yeah do you see any negative in that is there any other side of the coin yeah, of course there's another side of the coin. I mean, you guys pump out an amazing amount of high-quality content. But guess what? There's loads of people out there who pump out an amazing amount of low-quality content. And mm -hmm. so signal-to-noise is a problem. Curation becomes increasingly important. And I guess it really does help to be able to build that reputation. What then happens is that if it now takes less time to make a game, it now takes longer to build a reputation. Yeah, I feel like that's the case in any other online activity. Like, there's so much choice. And this applies to games, apps, podcasts, uh, blog posts, anything, really. There's so much choice. Uh, I guess the increase in, in content didn't go alongside an increase in attention from your audience. And... So you, you, you got to work hard for many, many years to kind of be in the position where almost, I don't want to say almost everything, but uh, uh, more than half of what you do is paid attention to by people who follow you. And, and this is w one of the aspects that I, that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, do, you, do you, I mean, of course you have a plan, but how do you approach this uh, maybe challenge of saying, I just made a profound change in my career going from one end of the spectrum to another. How do I essentially rebuild my the way that I approach people who pay attention to me? Like, how do you want people to know 
or follow the new Shahid? I think reputation is going to become meaningless very quickly if what I produce isn't of good quality. And yeah, you've got a lot of like you've got a lot of pressure on you to make something good, right? Yeah, like, people just expecting it. It's like well, you've you know you you've been responsible for helping so many games get made. You obviously know what a good video game is. Now you need to put your money where your mouth is, I guess. Yeah, or well, hopefully somebody else's money where my mouth is. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but 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 that's absolutely it. There is a lot of pressure, and one of the reasons I wanted to do that. Ludum Dare game jam was to say, hey, people, um, may I respectfully ask that you reset your expectations? I'm not about to set up a, a Kojima challenging studio here. That was never the plan. Um, I could have done that, not a Kojima challenging studio, but a studio. You know, I could have set, set something up and, but, you know, been there, done that. I don't want to do that. I want to do new things. So part of that was to say, look, I'm just like any other developer. Okay, I'm not just like any other developer, but in the sense that I'm working alone and I'm going to try and create some things and I'm going to experiment and I want to be able to do that very openly. What I could have done is made the really obvious mistake of not putting anything out there for a long time. And then maybe I come back and what if it was rubbish though? You know, what if I come back after like nine months and it's pants? That's nine months gone. And at my age, nine months is very very valuable so i thought let's get something out doesn't have to be great it was literally a week into my new life and let's learn from the experience of getting something out so that i can incorporate that into the next thing that i do as quickly as possible that was the main thing for me Uh, but in terms of getting attention obviously the network that i built is profoundly valuable it didn't come for free you know that's 34 years worth of effort but that's profoundly valuable. So if I do something good, that network will be valuable. But, you know, I'm not going to share builds of something if I don't think it's good. I'm not going to do that because that would devalue my network. People would stop liking me. They stop returning my calls and all of that. Um, but if I do something that I think could use some feedback, then I'll put it that way. But I certainly won't be relying on favours because I think that that would be totally a douchey thing to do. Do you feel like this is a more open type of development, you know, to to do game jams and to... You've been very active on Twitter and to share, you know, the kind of progress that you're making with your new indie life. And I, and I feel like there's a maybe a social aspect of uh, modern game development and tools like Twitter and, and talking to other people and being open and live streams, YouTube, Twitch, you name it. There's more of an open nature to development. Whereas when I was growing up, and I was little, like I, w- I was playing on my Super Nintendo and the first PlayStation. And game development development was such an obscure art, you know. I, I, I was buying game magazines and I was reading about game developers. And I was imagining these, these secret buildings where people got together to make video games. And now it seems more human in a way. Because you can follow people, you can watch people, and you can listen to people like you. Uh, talk about your career and game jams and, you know, releasing uh, games on Steam, it seems so much more natural. You've seen both types of development. You've seen uh, in in the 90s and you've seen the digital delivery becoming a trend and now you're leaving the trend. You're leaving the, the present, basically. 
How do you feel about all these changes? I think they're wonderful. They're profoundly empowering. I think corporations have changed massively as well. Mm. One, one of the things that I think, if I did anything, it was to help PlayStation as a company become more accessible, more personal. And the reason they let me carry on doing it was because it worked. Um, I mean, if I'd been less tactful, I think it would have been a real problem because I could have hurt the reputation of PlayStation. But I was very careful. And, and that worked really well. I guess 10 years ago, if you go back 10 years, let's, let's look at 2006. I was working with a bunch of developers, Federico, exactly the kind that you talk about. I'd, I'd visit these developers. They were in secure buildings. <laughs> they would have screens up uh, between teams. Certain projects would have paper put all over them because someone was visiting from PlayStation. And wow. this was a project <laughs> being done for Microsoft or Nintendo. And uh, you would be taken into a room. You would not be allowed to look at the monitors. You, you got a fleeting look at the one project that they didn't have to hide. <laughs> wow. You get taken into a meeting room and you would have a discussion and you would be shown some kind of uh, presentation and a pre-visualization of whatever they were trying to pitch you or trying to get onto the, the platform or whatever. And this would be a, a company of anywhere from 30 to 100 plus people in a developer, whether that developer was independent or publisher owned or whatever, didn't really matter. You know, the principles were the same. It's mostly meeting rooms and boring prepared stuff and no passion or enthusiasm. All of that was faked, you know, uh, everyone got their passion in a can those days, myself included. Um, and then what's changed is that you see it every day. Everyone's a lot more connected. Everyone's a lot more alive. Everyone's a lot more open, a lot less precious because Who's got the time, right? If you sit on something for a year, you're basically out of business for a year. You're not growing. You're not learning. You're not adjusting. You're not adapting. The world is changing too quickly for you to stay in your silo. Um, Ten years ago, there, there were none of these tools. I mean, if you wanted to get Unreal, for example, ten years ago, it would have cost you something like half a million dollars. Now it's free. <laughs> you know, two people, two people, one person. I could download Unreal now. It is one of the most powerful video game engines ever created. And I could start mucking about with it. Um, same with Unity. Unity wasn't around 10 years ago, of course. But had it been around, it would have cost a lot of money to license. And only large developers with huge budgets provided by publishers signed up to massively restrictive non-disclosure and non-compete clauses were able to get that sort of thing. And it was the same with development hardware. Okay, 10 years ago, right? Um, if a developer wanted to work with us, we'll say, okay, fair enough. You you got a good enough concept. Um, you're going to need to buy one of our tools from us, at least one of our tools. And we're talking about anywhere from five to 10,000 euro per tool. Well, what small developer can afford that? And then when you get, go up um, the, the tree a little bit, they wanted to buy 10 kits at a time. Well, 10 kits at a time is a substantial capital investment. Nowadays... You get a laptop off Amazon for 200 quid and download everything you want for free. And if you're smart, within a month, from nothing, you can have a game out and people commenting on it and connected to people everywhere around the world. I mean, it's just just wonderfully nuts. I love it. But does that, that sort of stuff help or hurt the industry, though? Like, whilst it's fantastic that people can do this, um, you... 
end up in a scenario where there could end up being too much, too many people making too many games, and then nobody can get a voice. There are too many games, but there are too <laughs> many books. Sure. Yeah. There are too many films. You know, I. You must have gone through this, and uh, I'd love to hear your story of how you use Netflix. But I will tell you, one one of the most um, boring rituals that my wife and I go through because we don't watch much telly, but once a week we'll watch Netflix, and. It's on a Friday night and we'll sit down. We'll spend half an hour surfing Netflix looking for something to watch. And there's nothing and yet there's everything. <laughs> everything, yeah. Yeah? So it's the same with video games. We all face this problem in every form of media. One of the saddest things I, I came to the realisation of when I was in my 20s was I sat down worked out how many years roughly I'd have left to live and how many books I was reading per year and how many books I'd be able to read. And I thought, that, that is tragic. I'll only ever be able to read maybe three to 5,000 books for the rest of my life. That's not enough. And it's the same with video games. You'll only be able to play so many video games. And of course, with all these new devices that everybody has and all these new ways of enjoying digital content, digital content sounds so, I don't know, sausage factory, doesn't it? Okay, so all this media that people get to enjoy, it's... It's all competing for people's attention. So time is even more squeezed. So Federico, the thing you were saying earlier about it fits into your lifestyle, that's exactly it. You've got so much stuff coming at you. What else can you do? Who can sit down and afford to say, I'm going to spend two hours now and I'm going to do nothing but, but game. I mean, you might be able to do that. But if you're faced with, as you were saying earlier, Mike, a patch download of, of eight hours duration, well, that's it. That's your gaming time gone. Or you consign it to history. Because here's the other thing that happens, right? I don't, I, I don't know if you face this problem, but I certainly do. Is I'll have a look at something on Netflix, yeah? And I'll add it to my watch later list. And I'll never watch it later. Yeah. What's, what's <laughs> with that? Yeah, for me, it's the same with articles that I save for, you know, read later. Uh, and apps, really. There's I always say this, there's too many apps. And as, a, as the owner of a website where we, we cover apps, it's really... It's really hard to kind of uh, fight the struggle to remain focused, but also to cover as many good apps as possible. Because I feel like, and uh, and and I think this is this really applies to any independent career that happens online. Um, you gotta find the balance between I I want to be focused. I want to find a very specific niche or audience because I, I cannot possibly on my own appeal to millions and millions of people. I got to find the niche that, you know, the, the famous thousand fans that will follow me around and stick around. But also I want to cover a lot of different things and I want to, and I want to be able to write about or to talk about many, many different apps and games and books and media, you know, and I can only imagine for a game developer to be able to say, well, I want to make a game, uh, which type of game do I want to make? Uh, do I want to make a... So do I pick a genre? Do I pick a platform? Do I pick a console? Do I pick a type of smartphone? Do I go with iOS and Android? Or do I want to target Android smartphones or tablets? And there's so many choices. And as a consumer, so I'm, I'm on the other side, as a consumer, I'm like, okay... Uh, I want to play a new game. So what what's coming out this week? And I'm looking, there's uh, indie games on Steam, there's indie games on PlayStation, on Nintendo, on iOS, 
and there's double A, triple A titles coming out. And it's so difficult to keep the focus of, okay, I want to play two games simultaneously. I, I don't want to play more than two games at the same time. But also, oh man, there's so many games. <laughs> like, there's a, a, a paradox of choice, if you will, both as a consumer and as a developer. Today's episode is also brought to you by Igloo, the internet you'll actually like. With Igloo, you don't have to be stuck at your desk to get your work done. You can manage your task lists from wherever you are. You can share your status updates from the garden on a working from home day. Or you can even access the latest version of a file from home in your pajamas. Nobody will ever know. These days, everything is mobile. and Your work should be too. If you ever looked at your internet and thought, this is horrible, why did somebody make it look this way? These days are over. Igloo allows you to make your internet feel like a place that you want to actually work in. It's incredibly configurable. You can set it up to look and feel exactly how you want. And thanks to group spaces and role-based access permissions and an easy drag-and-drop widget editor, you can reorganize the whole platform to fit exactly how certain teams in your organizations work. Igloo have integrated Box, Google Drive, and Dropbox into one big, easy-to-secure platform. If you know terms like 256-bit encryption, single sign-on, and Active Directory integration, You'll know how safe and secure this is. It stops people from scattering documents into these other great services like Box and Dropbox, for example. It brings them all into Igloo and keeps all of your company data secure. With Igloo, you can share files with your coworkers for you all to collaborate on, and you can also keep track of who's seen them with red receipts and make sure everyone's on the same page and has seen those important documents. It's time to break away from the internet you hate. Go and sign up for Igloo right now, and you can try it out for free with any team of up to 10 people for as long as you want. Sign up now at igloosoftware.com slash remaster. Thank you so much to Igloo for their support of this show and Relay FM. Shahid, you must have seen so many games during your career at PlayStation. And now that you're, in a sense, free of the constraints of a company, if there were any, uh, you can make games and you can play games. How do you cope with choice? If I have... The answer to that question, I will become the richest person on the planet. It's it's probably the most important uh, question that people who who live the digital lifestyle face, because it's, it's all about that, isn't it? It's about opportunity cost, I found. Yeah, I I think I realized uh, when I was going through my watch later list why I didn't watch those films later because I thought if I watch one of these these are already out of date I could instead watch something brand new so let's look for something brand new instead but I don't quite see anything that I like so one of the things that is quite important to people quite important to markets is novelty people like to see the churn of stuff which is why it's very rare unless something is of utterly exceptional quality that something old will make a reappearance in any kind of chart there has to be some new value that's been brought back to something that was well loved to begin with or something cultish comes back again so novelty is really important that helps quality is absolutely vital at my age it's got to be really 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 worth my time and it's got to be really, really, really worth my attention. Attention is the most precious currency. I and mean, time is invaluable, of course. Um, and I guess if you're asking me how I make those choices at the moment, I would have to say probably not as well as I like. And the really scary thing is I'm not really sure how I would improve. 
I mean, for example, if I want to get apps, right, for, for my iPad, uh, for my iPhone, for my Mac or whatever, any apps, because as you know, I'm an Apple devotee, um, I, I'm going to read Mac stories. I'm going to look at your links. <laughs> I, I look for, I'm not saying this to big you up. I'm saying the way I think a lot of us work is, though I should big you up, of course, um, that goes without saying, I hope, is that it really pays to pick pick your curators very, very carefully. So, for example, if you're reading a lot, then um, there are going to be two or three people who blog uh, about books that you might really like to read. So, for example, Tim Ferriss is one of the people I follow. And I will look much more carefully at his book recommendations than I would at just somebody, uh, some average Joe that I know, um, simply because he's not only established credibility in that field, but he's written books himself and his previous recommendations have paid off. I've never been disappointed. And I guess the same would apply with music. The same would apply with video games. People who know my tastes or people whose tastes align with my own. And those tastes become narrower and narrower as you age, sadly. So you've got to keep exposing yourself to new stuff. Um, so that's the personal side. But there is also a digital side, as you know. I mean, with... I think Amazon are probably the best at this, you know, something else that you might want to purchase and you instinctively click it and, hey, how do they know me so well? And I think that is happening more and more. One of the things Amazon learned very interestingly was they had a team uh, to do the recommendation engine digitally and then they had a team of human curators and they were thinking, which team works best? And they carried on running both teams and they tried one, then the other, and they realized what, what worked best was a combination of the two. So that human element, I think, is absolutely vital. And with video games, I think that human element is vital. And I'm not talking about reviews. I'm talking about people who use the stuff. The reason I like uh, what you write, Federico, is because you talk about not the features, but how that app fits in with your lifestyle mm -hmm. and, and helps to improve your workflow. I think that's absolutely vital. And with the game, I, I don't want people to say, Oh, it's got this, it's got that, it's got this, it's got that. I, I want people to say, this is how it moved me. Um, this, is, this is a level of excitement I felt. Um, not too artistic, but also not too mechanical in its description. And I wanted to be a human being who's given me reliable information before. So I think what's happening more and more is we are becoming, it's, it's weird, isn't it? We are becoming more dependent on humans, less dependent on machines. I think in the early days of Steam, you just buy anything, right? It was all going to be cool. But now that's impossible. And you can't even go by their recommendations necessarily. So you so you ask people like, for example, there's a guy I follow called uh, Robert Fearon, who's a really good guide to recommending good uh, independent games. He's also a good touch point for telling you how the independent development community are feeling about an issue. Um, so I'll look at his lists. And um, with, with the mass market stuff, it's much easier because you're having that message pushed at you constantly anyway. And you're going to buy or you're not going to buy. You know, it's not really going to make that much difference. Does that does that answer your question partially, maybe? Yeah. And uh, and I really love the part about uh, humans and, and machines. I really don't, don't know where to start. I'm listening to you and I'm fascinated by all the, the different choices that you have to make now. And it, you're talking, Shahid, and it feels like you're a 20-year-old making games for the first time but i know that you're not which is super intriguing to me 
because you've been you've been in this game for decades and you talk with the spirit of a teenager and i mean this in a in a good way do you ever feel like other people don't like your enthusiasm oh that's definitely happened yeah on on twitter especially and it's understandable you know i think there are there are a few people uh, quite a few people on twitter who who accused me of hyping stuff and it was just my excitement but i think what they were expecting was a corporate voice and i refused to be that corporate voice i just wasn't going to do that and some of these people assumed i was working in pr and i had no media training at all i eventually got some media training didn't change a thing <laughs> uh, <laughs> um so so yeah people didn't like it because i think they had made some assumptions about what kind of role i played at playstation my role was actually business development so it was way more stuffy and formal than than even pr but my enthusiasm had been ignited as i say back in march 2009 when i visited the honey slug offices i think that's when i started to speak with a much more positive voice much more enthusiastic because you know time's kind of running out for me how many games can i really make um Uh, one of the things that's really important to me is if I do something, I really want to get it right and I want to learn any lessons I still got left to learn really, really quickly. All of that's really, really important. So I, th I think the enthusiasm wasn't always there. I mean, the reason I've got it now is I say someone woke me up and, and developers kept waking me up. That's just wonderful. Humans do tend to go down the same uh, routes. You know, you, you go down this um, extremely strong neural pathway. I think it was Edward de Bono who wrote um, Water Logic. And he talked about neural pathways almost like rivers forming in valleys. And you're much more inclined to follow the same route, the same way that a river that's forging its way through a valley and deepening that gorge further and further. You're, you're more likely as a human being to do that. It's just humanity. There's nothing we can do about that. There's an element of neuroplasticity involved, but it's, it really is very, very difficult to alter those pathways. So... I think where the computers can help us there is they can shake up our thinking. And you're talking about Apple Music. Yeah, I mean, you get a recommendation, you think, hold on a minute. That happened to me, actually. You know, I should go back to Apple Music, actually, because I did try it. And the first time it created a playlist for me wasn't great, but it was okay. The second time I came back to it, the day later, it was magnificent. There were all these bands from the 80s that I should have heard, but I'd been kind of prejudiced about at the time. And I listened to them and I thought... They, how do these people know me so well? This is this is unbelievable. This is all the stuff that I really wanted to hear. And I didn't hear at the time. So it broadened up my my listening. So I think that's where computers are good. They're, if you're used to going down a certain path with your thinking, they can shake that up a bit. I guess this is one of the big things that's different from, you know, look, you know the whole time we've been talking about like now and then. And when video games are first around, you had like magazines, enthusiast magazines, where you could get recommendations and find out new stuff about new games or maybe there were some tv shows and stuff but the difference now is like you can still get all of that right you can go to somewhere like ign and you can get the fire hose of information of all the games coming out or you can go to touch arcade and find out just the ios games or you know there are i'm sure a ton of like just niche enthusiast sites where you find out about x type of indie game that you're super interested in like maybe you really love roguelikes and i bet there are websites like dedicated to that stuff so you can get the human 
recommendations on a more minute scale. But then you can also go to the Steam store and find recommendations that are based on your purchase history and stuff like that, which the computers can can give us. And that's one of the big differences is there are more games. Yeah, definitely there are more games now than there used to be. But there's also more systems in place to help you find out about them. As humans, we're kind of naturally uh, distrustful of machines making choices for us because we feel like there's no emotion or passion involved in those decisions, that just some numbers got got churned somewhere and out pops a recommendation. We think, well, it can't possibly be right. But I think we are finding more and more that actually that's not a bad way of looking at it. Uh, it's not a bad way of approaching the problem. But I think we still have more work to do. I mean, one one of the other problems that we're facing, because... I think our attention is so fractured now. We can't necessarily play every game, but we might be able to play a bit of it. That's really cool. Yeah. So I think there's definitely scope for shorter games. I mean, I'd like to do a game that takes... I, I, I'm just thinking out loud here, so you know, feel free to laugh at this uproariously, but I'm thinking about doing a game that takes a maximum of half an hour to play, and you can't play it again. Because, because why not, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> I have this whole like topic for later about where ideas come from and I really need we need to dig into where that idea came from at some point. But I I understand what you're saying though like Monument Valley, right? Yeah. Didn't just didn't take half an hour to complete, but like the first levels like I had it done in 2 hours or something like that. And yeah. like that's it. And it's like there are people that don't like that, but there I mean I know at the time like I loved it because it was a fantastic thing that I could consume in a short amount of time. And it just made sense for me as a type of game that I want to play. A game that lasts half an hour that maybe I can't ever play again, that could be interesting. I would at least like to try it out. Maybe that's your selling point. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I think what I'm saying is maybe you could play it again. Maybe there just wouldn't be an awful lot of value in it because there are, there are a lot of, for, for example, albums, right? I call them albums. Listen to how old I am. No, we still call them albums. Do we You're still right. call them albums? Yeah, we, oh, we still phew. call them albums. Records. Records, yes, records. Yeah. Okay, uh, records. So records lasted, what, half an hour? 40 minutes? And you would play them again and again and again. So maybe there's scope for a game that is exactly the same, but slightly different. Because although the, the game isn't necessarily different, you're different. Yeah, well, also, like, the thing with music and TV shows that are, like, these one-hit things is if you watch them again, if they're made really well, you notice things that you didn't notice the first time. Yeah, exactly. And you're different, right? Yeah. Sing about a book. You know, you come back to a book a few years later, you read it, and, oh, my God, I don't remember that. So I think there's some merit to that idea. I think your point about Monument Valley is spot on. Journey was another really good example yep. for me. I think there, yeah. there are loads of... There's loads of opportunities, I think, for for games that don't try and fill this um i've got to give you more content than you could possibly ever complain about niche because i think that is a niche i think the bigger market is what people can comfortably manage in their time and enjoy and not necessarily have to devote their entire life turning into a ninja on wudan mountain too so basically what we're suggesting is that people re-listen to this episode again so they can pick up on all of the things that they missed the first time right like that's how that works just keep <laughs> Just keep going back around and you'll be fine. Use one hour, you just keep circling it and you'll eventually get to what the whole point of this was. Or just play it backwards. 